2 Corinthians uh, chapter number 8, 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to spend some time there in just a moment, but today we, we bring Missions Month to a conclusion. And every year, it's always hard when you have a month where you, you focus your attention on missions because what you don't want to happen and what I pray doesn't happen is that we forget about it. We forget missions. We want the zeal that we feel as a result of what we have seen, heard from the Word of God, heard from the missionaries this month to continue to drive us throughout the rest of this year. And uh, we want zeal like John Patton. Let me share a little bit about John Patton with you. He was a missionary to the cannibals in the new hybrids in the 1800s. Uh, he had the courage to overcome the criticism that the elders in his church and denomination would throw at him. There was a certain Mr. Dixon who exploded when he found out that Patton wanted to go to the cannibals, and he said, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. Former missionaries who had gone there had been eaten by the cannibals. And Patton responded this way to Mr. Dixon. You're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will raise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer, the zeal of Patton. Or what about Hudson Taylor who gave his life in China and he, he, he famously said, if I had a thousand lives, I would give them all for China. The zeal of Jim Elliot who wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Him and his companions killed in Ecuador. Hopefully you admired the zeal of the longs to go to Egypt, to go back to Egypt, to reach the refugees and the people in a city of, of 22 million. They want to take the gospel to the people of Egypt. I don't want to take the gospel to the people of Egypt. I don't want to be the boots on the ground there, but they're willing to go or the stories that, that John was able to share with us last week, for those of you who were able to be here and see what God is doing, not just in, in one pocket of the world, but all over the world through these amazing churches. And one of the most beautiful things that we're beginning to see and have seen over the last uh, 20 years, 30 years, is the nations, the nations that we sent missionaries to 50 years ago are now sending missionaries to the other nations. What an amazing thing God is doing in this world. And we get to be a part of it. Mm. So wonderful. Jesus said this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Some of you read that just this week. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And here's the thing, the Spirit has come. In Acts chapter 2, we read that the Spirit rushed in, and the church is born in that moment, and we're a product of that Spirit coming, and we have the Spirit of God. And because the Spirit has come, 
We have the power now. We have the ability to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus would also say this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end. We don't go alone. Jesus says, I'm with you in this endeavor. What about the word from Psalm 96, verse 3? Declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among all the people. So can anybody in this room deny that we have a, a call, we have a command, we have a commission to take the gospel to the peoples of the world? Can anyone deny that calling? Romans 10, verse 13 says this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Isn't that promise and the fulfillment of that promise in your life why you're sitting here today? You've called on the name of the Lord. You've recognized that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and you have hope now. You have new life now. But Paul doesn't end there, does he? Here's what he says in verse 14. So how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news how is it that a person can believe in something they've never heard how can they hear something that's never been shared with them how can someone share it with them unless they are sent to take that message as piper says so well in one of his particular sermons that i put a clip of one up this week on facebook we can either be zealous senders, zealous goers, or disobedient. Those are our options. And Meadowview, our primary role as a church is to send the preachers, to send the missionaries, to share Christ with the nations. Years ago, this church sent the, the Richards to Wales. And they had a fruitful ministry that still continues there today. We sent the McClure's to Brazil. And their ministry continues to grow. The Houghton's to Mexico. Loved in that video the emphasis on working with the deaf. One of those people groups that we kind of push to the edge of society. Even, even though in the Gospels, Jesus was very active in the lives of those kinds of groups. The Houghton's are in Mexico working with the deaf community. That's their particular ministry. We sent the shadows to Ethiopia. And all of this sending requires our money. It requires prayer. And so the big question for all of us today is, are we willing to give so that they can go and declare his glory among the nations? What, what keeps you from giving? What, what's keeping you from giving more? What greater investment have you found?
Because if you have found a greater investment, I would like to know what that is. I'd like for you to be able to share that with me. As I was reviewing for this sermon and looking over past notes, I came across this that I wrote a few years ago, and I thought, what a blessing as I read it. Here's what I communicated to this church. I said this, there are a handful of you that faithfully support our four missionary families. Thank you for giving. I went on to say, but I'm not satisfied with supporting only four missionaries that are reaching only four countries out of the 190. I'm not satisfied with supporting them at $80 every month. The vision is that we would support these four missionaries at $150 a month. The vision is that we would immediately begin to financially support the Coolball family and the Alsip family and in time others. And I kid you not, this is in here. I would love to begin supporting an organization like Wycliffe Bible Translators who are zealously working to translate God's word into every language. I went on to say this will take sacrifice. It'll take sacrifice of our money. We'll have to sacrifice our time to invest in getting to know these missionaries, praying for them and with them as they endeavor to open blinded eyes to turn those from darkness to light, the power of Satan to the kingdom of God so that they might receive the forgiveness of sin. I wrote that three or four years ago. I spoke that three or four years ago and the blessing is this, this church responded and we were able to take on the Kuhlball family. And we were able to take on the Alsip family. And we didn't stop at raising the support level at 150. Last year, we were able to support our missionaries and take that to $200 every month. Praise God for that. Thank God for the work that he's done in a matter of three years. But we cannot stop. There are still a billion people who don't even have a copy of God's word in their language. We cannot be satisfied. And this is what we see happening in the book of Acts. In Acts, uh, which it's, it's amazing that we get to start that, the timing of all this, I love. Many of you are reading through the church plan. You're, you're reading the story of how the churches are learning to support the work of missions, the advancement of the gospel, and supporting other churches as they enter into trials. And by Paul's estimation, there is one group of churches that really sets the tone for what this support looks like. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul highlights several characteristics of the churches in Macedonia and their particular way of giving. And today I wanna, I wanna go through those characteristics with you that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. And again, uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about another group of churches, and that's what he's speaking of here in chapter eight. Follow along as I read verse one. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Just to put that in context for you, we're talking about the church at Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. Uh, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly 
for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, and in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know, you know, Corinthians, you know, Meadowview, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Father, we ask now your blessing. God, we desperately need to hear your words. Spirit, we desperately need you to work and help us to see what it is we're called to do in this moment. How it is that we are to give. It's not just that we give, it's how we give, it's why we give. We don't want to be pharisaical, hypocritical givers. We want to be earnest. We want to be sincere. And so we pray for your help in understanding the text today and applying it and living it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Characteristic number one is this. It's a giving that is motivated by God's grace. Paul begins in verse one and says, brothers, we want you to know about the grace of God, the grace of God that has been given among these churches. It's not anything that they have deserved. It's the grace that God has given to them. The Macedonians giving these churches giving was not a result of uh, this desire to show kindness to humanity. The need to perform some good work so they could check the box. It wasn't born out of a duty. It wasn't born out of the compulsion or the arm twisting of the Apostle Paul. The reason they gave was because Christ had changed their hearts. And with a new heart came a new way of thinking, came a new way of living for them. They had a desire now to seek God's kingdom before anything else. Their affections were fixed on heaven and not on the things of this earth. Their love was centered on God, not the things of this world. And they hungered and they thirsted for righteousness and godliness. They had a desire now to obey God's word and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. They are new creatures in Christ. His grace had changed them fundamentally. When we as followers of Jesus are regenerated, when we're saved, we give to God's work. And not because we fear his wrath. I don't give because I'm afraid he'll take something away from me. We don't do it because somebody twists our arm to give. We give because we have a new heart, the heart of Jesus. And, and you know that heart of Jesus that's put inside of us. 
Jesus was a giver, wasn't he? Jesus gave everything. It's that verse that we just ended with. See, the motivation for missions, I appreciate what John said. If we get the gospel, then we get it. If we love the gospel of Jesus Christ, then missions is just the, the, the natural outflow of that. And in verse nine, it says this, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, but for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, could become rich. That's our motivation. It motivated the Macedonians. The second characteristic that we find of giving in these verses is they gave in difficult circumstances. I get it, some of you right now, you're thinking about bills that are, are due or past due. You're thinking about some debt that you incurred maybe over the holidays, and you're thinking there's no way I can give to missions. There's no way I can be a part of this, but I do want you to consider for a moment these churches and what Paul says about these churches. See, it's on Paul's second missionary journey that he makes his way to Macedonia. You remember he was trying to figure out where to go next. And he had a vision, he had a dream, and, and we know from the book of Exodus, it's, it's called the, the Macedonian call. There was a, a, a man who appeared and said, please come to us. And so they decided to go to Philippi. And did it go well for them in Philippi? It did not. Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. Uh, this is where they're, they're, they're there to rot, but they sing, and, and the prison opens, and the Philippian jailer's gonna kill himself, and he says, don't kill yourself, and, and his house is saved that day. And the gospel begins to work in Philippi, but great persecution comes there. Great persecution comes as they go to Thessalonica and Berea. The Jews are livid that Paul is bringing the news of Jesus to these communities, these towns. And they were violently opposed to the Christians, and it got worse after Paul left. Many of them were beaten. They were thrown into prison. Many of them lost their jobs, and with all of those circumstances, they were left in poverty. They were left with very little to live on. The believers in Macedonia easily could have excused themselves from any type of giving. But what I want you to see is in verse 2, that it is in this trial of affliction that the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounds in riches. So even in their poverty, the Macedonian churches put the needs of others before their own. In their poverty, they give sacrificially to the work of Christ. Of all of the Christians, the Macedonians had the best excuses, the best reasons to give, to not give, yet they gave anyway. They gave with joy, they gave generously, they gave sacrificially, voluntarily, for them it was worship. Let's consider that joy. This is the third characteristic. They gave with joy. What is it that brings you joy? It's such a fun word, isn't it? It's one of my favorite words we find in Scripture, joy, because, you, you know, you just, that's what we want. That's what we're all searching for, that, that satisfaction, that thing that will, will last, that thing that will fulfill we usually don't think of joy when it comes to putting money in a, in a plate that somebody passes in front of us. But for them, that's what it was. 
The example of the Macedonians is that they gave out of the abundance of the joy that was in their hearts. They didn't give grudgingly. They weren't reluctant. It wasn't a sense of duty that drove them to, to do what they did. They weren't under duress. They gave freely, gladly, joyfully, cheerfully. Just as Chuck read as our service opened from chapter 9, just one chapter over where he says, he who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, let him give, not grudgingly, not, not out of necessity, not being uh, pushed to do it. And what does he conclude with? Because God loves the cheerful giver. The one who gives out of the abundance of joy they feel. This is the kind of joy that comes to us when we remember that we're giving so that others might receive the life-giving word of God. I really wish we had time today to show a video that we showed a few years ago. Some of you will remember it. I'll make sure it gets posted this week. But it's a tribe in Papua New Guinea. And there's a plane that lands on an airstrip. And inside the plane are copies of the word of God in their language. As that plane lands, the people from that small community are gathered there, cheering like they're at a Super Bowl. And the elders get those boxes and they carry them with great reverence to their community center and begin to distribute. And all the while, the people are just weeping with joy. Because they get the word of God in their language. We get to be a part of that. We get to be this conduit that God uses to bring such joy to somebody's life. And that should bring such joy to our lives to recognize this is, this is the goal. This is what we're trying to do. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Fourth, their giving was with generosity. In verse 2, it tells us that, that there was this great trial of affliction, but it was the abundance of their joy and through their deep poverty that they abounded in riches. And so we already know that possession-wise, these churches, these Christians, they didn't have very much. They were left in poverty. The term that's used, that Paul uses, is deep poverty. They weren't just poor, they were dirt poor. They had nothing, and so Paul also says this, though, that they were rich, and that's a little bit confusing. But how does he qualify their richness? He says this, they were rich in their liberality. They were rich in their willingness to give. They were rich in their love for others. They took Jesus at his words when he said, take no thought for your life. We have to strive to put on the mindset of the Macedonian Christians which, by the way, is the mindset of Christ. Philippians 2, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind and humility, esteem others better than yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but look to the interest of other people. And then he says this, let that mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And I never like to stop there because he goes on to describe the mindset of Christ Jesus because he was in the form of God and he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, 
So he made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant and he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Let that be our mindset. As we generously give, that's the mind of Christ, willing to lay it all down for the benefit of other people. In verse 3, we find this characteristic that their giving was proportionate. It was sacrificial. They gave according to their ability. In verse 12 later, Paul will state another principle. says, only give what we have, not what you do not have. This isn't the, the call to just write that million-dollar check and trust that God's going to put the million dollars in your bank account overnight somehow, miraculously. It's not what Paul's asking. That's not what I'm asking. But notice the full statement, beginning in verse 3. For he says, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave. As the Macedonians gave according to their ability, they also made sure that they did so in proportions that hurt a little. That cost them something. It wasn't just easy for them to do that. It was something that stung Given their impoverished situation and all the other difficulties that challenged them, their giving was far beyond what anybody would even expect of them. But these extraordinary believers gladly impoverished themselves all the more for the benefit of the other churches, for the benefit of the gospel. They trusted that God would supply their needs. I hope you can make the, the, the greater connection in Scripture here. Because one of those churches is the church at Philippi. And it was to the church at Philippi that Paul said, even in my, my darkest times where I had great need, remember what he says, you gave to me. This church in poverty gave to Paul. So his ministry continued. And Paul gives them this promise that God will supply your needs according to his riches in glory. Their faith in God's provision enabled them to give sacrificially to God's work. I appreciated some of the, the stories that John shared last week about God providing. If we, if we give, God will supply some of those needs. I, I heard of one instance this week, somebody already brought that up, that, that God just brought a, a job. God just brought something that enabled me to have more. Sixth, We've got to give voluntarily. As verse 3 continues, Paul says that the Macedonians gave of their own accord. In other words, they were self-motivated. No one coerced them. No one manipulated them. They just wanted to give. This is my favorite part of the, the, the text. It's my favorite part of the story because it seems that Paul wasn't even going to ask them. Paul knew their circumstances. And he wasn't even going to ask these churches to participate in the special offering. They were poor. But it says they came begging to give. Begging to be able to be a part of this. They did not want to miss the opportunity and the privilege to give. How often do you see that? They genuinely believed and understood this world is not their home. I struggle here, we all struggle here to believe it, to own it. We invest so much of our, our time, 
our resources, our money, in something very temporary. We forget the investment level of the temporary versus the eternal. We may spend 90% of what we have investing in this world and give 10% to eternity. The Macedonians wanted to do more. And they did what they could. So they gave voluntarily, proportionately. They gave sacrificially. They also gave in an attitude of worship with submissiveness. Paul goes on to write this and he says, and, and they did not as we hoped, but first, I love the, the wording here, they gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. The Macedonians' giving was an act of worship. They weren't, they weren't waiting for Paul to say, yep. They didn't petition Paul and say, hey, we'll, we'll give this if you write about us in your next letter to the Corinthians. If I can get my name on a wall, if it can be recorded, then we'll give. No, they, they just gave because it was an act of worship for them. When we pass the plates around on a Sunday, and you, you put those resources that God's given you in. It's meant to be an act of worship. Now the passing of plates, I don't think that's something they did in Acts. I, I think that's something that came along sometime. And I don't know that it's something we'll do forever as a church. But for now as we do that, I hope you understand that as that makes its way around, what that's meant to be is just what every other aspect of this service is meant to be. Just like our singing, our prayers, our, our approach to the word of God, the fellowship, all of that's meant to be worship, so is that aspect of the service. It's meant to be an act of worship and reverence, giving back to God. The reality is most of the time we don't think of it that way. Paul makes it clear that the Macedonians' giving didn't start with a, with a checkbook. It was a much bigger offering. It was themselves. It started with everything they had. God, God isn't interested in you. God isn't interested in you giving your money if you're not willing to give yourself. It's quite hypocritical for us to say, I'll just write a check. That, that's demeaning to the Savior who gave everything for us. I'll just throw some money at you, Jesus. And then I'll do whatever I want to do the rest of the week. And I'll come back and I'll throw some more money at you. That is great disservice. It dishonors the cross. It dishonors Christ. He wants everything. He wants all of us. He, he, he was very honest about that in the Gospels. Jesus, we want to follow you. You want to follow me? You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross every day. And you've got to live in obedience. The giving is an act of worship. And finally, we have to give in love. In verse 7 and 8, we read that uh, as you abound in everything, because the Corinthians were abounding, God was blessing their church. They were abounding in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, Paul encourages them, see that you abound in this grace also. 
He says, I don't speak by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Love is to be the central character of a follower of Jesus. That's why it's number one on the list in the fruit of the Spirit. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13 it says, everything else will pass away, prophecy, tongues, but love will abide forever. Love is to be that central characteristic. And James puts it this way. He says, what does it profit, my brothers, though a man say he has faith and he doesn't have works, can faith save him? So if a a brother or sister is naked and destitute of their daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, but you don't give them the things that are needful to their body? What does that profit? Even so, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead, being alone. You may say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by your works. The driving factor, the underlying current that James is getting at here is love. Love will motivate us. Love will motivate us to give, to not just talk about it, to not just say the words, but motivate us to action. Missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, once wrote this, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. So often I get it backwards. I try to do the other thing. So we have to give motivated by God's grace, even in difficult circumstances, with generosity, proportionate, sacrificial, voluntarily. It's an act of worship. It's an act of love. Paul hoped that this example of the Macedonians would encourage the Corinthians in their giving. It's why he brings it up. And my hope and Paul's hope and the Spirit's hope is that the example of the Macedonians will encourage us in our giving so that others may know the name of Christ. Many of you, today is a day of commitment. We're asking you to, to write down on, on this card what you'll give every month to missions this year. The reason it's so important for us to collect that is because it it allows us to know if we can take the longs on for support. We would love to add them to our missions partnership, but we need more committed to do that. We would love to get behind a Share Light initiative or a Wycliffe Bible translator and be able to funnel money in so that those guys and ladies can go to work and move to some remote village in Africa, learn their language, take God's word, translate it into their language. It takes money. And today is a day of commitment for that very reason. We need you to say, this is how much I'm gonna give. The goal that we've set as a church this year so that we can advance in those particular areas is $2,250 every month. $2,250 so that we can continue to grow our missions endeavors around the world and continue to give. I want to close with with a short story told by David Platt, 
in his book Radical, which our young adults are currently reading through, and I'm excited about it. Platt says this, he says, one of my good friends spent time recently among the unreached and unengaged peoples of Southeast Asia. As he talked with villagers in one remote area, he tried to uncover their core beliefs, and so he asked some questions. How, how were we created? Their answer, we don't know. He asked, who sends the rain for the crops? They responded again, we don't know that either. And he asked, what happens when we die? They looked back at him again and said, no one's ever told us about these things. Soon thereafter, this friend found himself in another remote village with people, again, who had never heard the gospel. And he said that they were warm, they were hospitable, they invited him to share a drink with them in their home, and one man went into a small shop, and he reappeared in a moment later with a classic red Coke can. And immediately it hit home with my friend that a soft drink company in Atlanta has done a better job getting brown sugar water to these people than the church of Jesus Christ has done in getting the gospel to them. I hope you feel the weight of that. The gospel, the good news. We cannot let this world, the pleasures that it puts in front of us, the toys, whatever it is, cause us to lose sight of the commission to take the gospel to the nations. There's a bit of a parable that I realized even this morning some of you have noticed that ever since Advent, I've had a candle over here burning every service. It was meant to just signify for us as we move through Missions Month that the light of Christ, the hope has come. And it's our job to take that hope and to share it with the rest of the world. And this morning, I forgot to light the candle. And as I sat there and realized, I could go up and light it now in the middle of the songs. <laughs> but it just hit me. So many days. So many weeks. I just don't light the candle. It's not that important to me. We have a commission to take the gospel to our homes, to our places of employment, to our neighborhoods, to our friends, our family to the nations and we have to continue to move forward and advance the good news of Jesus and it's going to cost us